0: Log Talk Radio. I own it, I did it, not proud. But... Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name's Jean, and I'm co-hosting tonight with my lovely friend, Ellie. Hello, Ellie.
1: Hi, Jean. How are you?
0: Good, good. Thanks for popping in tonight. Catherine was scheduled to co-host, and you stepped in at the last moment when Catherine couldn't be here. So,
1: And actually, it's I'm glad pleasure. you did,
0: because I know you have some good insights to, to give us as well. I wish we were all on the phone together, but... Thanks for being here, and our best no goes problem. out to Catherine. We will miss you tonight, and hello also to Amanda, who is listening live and tweeting all our best bits as we chat tonight. Um, so our topic tonight is drinking dreams, and whether you're newly sober or in successful long-term recovery, awakening from a dream about drinking alcohol can be unsettling, to say the least. Drinking dreams do have significance, and we can use them to reinforce our recovery. Now, we do have a guest joining us for this discussion, and you may remember Josie from our recent Holiday Survival Guide episode. Josie writes a wonderful recovery blog called The Miracle is Around the Corner, and we're very happy to have her along with us tonight. Hi, Josie.
2: Hi, Jean. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Josie. Thanks for being here tonight.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear your voice.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And so, Josie, before we dig into our topic, first we just want you to tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Okay. That I can do. Let's see. I am a stay-at-home mom of two incredible children and the wife of 15 years to my amazing husband, And now that I reflect back on that, I just used a bunch of superlative adjectives. So I guess that means I love my family. Um, Now (laughs) let me qualify a little bit on why I can speak on the Bubble Hour. I am in recovery from alcoholism and addiction since January of 2012. So a couple weeks back I just celebrated my three-year soberversary, as we call it. Yay,
1: Yay. Yay. congratulations. Congratulations. That's awesome.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Every day I, I thank God for it. Um, So, now, alcoholism needs no qualification, obviously. Addiction, on the other hand, is a bit general, so to be more specific, I have recovered from an addiction to prescription pain medication. Um, Currently, and because I truly believe recovery is a lifelong journey rather than a destination with an endpoint, I'm exploring my relationship with food and discovering some incredible similarities between my relationship with food and my relationship with drugs and alcohol. So, I'm actually hoping, Jean and Ellie, that we'll talk again soon on that topic because I have a lot to say on it. Anyway, I got sober in 2012, leaning heavily on a 12 step program, a fellowship in which I still participate. I run a weekly 12 step meeting. I have built a nice network of attendees who enjoy one another immensely. Uh, as you mentioned, I also write a recovery blog. <clears throat> I started that with the most basic of intentions. I was about three months sober. A friend of mine suggested I keep an online diary both for myself but for my friends and family who were interested. My journey of recovery from that time till now that this blog has evolved into just the most amazing tool in my recovery toolkit it's provided me with a whole different kind of sober support um, it bolsters my decision to stay sober each and every day there are fellow bloggers who I count among my friends some I've even met in person I still marvel over at the magic of blogging now I specifically led with the stay-at-home mom and wife part of my story because the longer I stay sober, the more I realize that while alcoholism is a permanent part of my story, it is far from the only part. I have a close circle of friends. We regularly get together and we have since college, which is decades ago at this point. Um I've been an active part of my kids' school lives. I'm attempting to identify as a fitness person, you know, that's like a work in progress right now, but you know, we'll get there. I'm close with my extended family. I love to cook. I love to bake. I'm well-known for both chicken parm and pound cake, and I love to watch television. I'm currently into the House of Cards. I'm almost done with that new series that just came out. I love okay. reality shows, and in an ideal world, I'd combine my desire for fitness with my love of television. But so far, those things are in complete <laughs> conflict with one another. <laughs> anyway, oh, I'm hear rambling you at one. this point. Oh, Someday it'll happen. But anyway, I'm rambling, so I'm going to... Keep quiet now and let somebody else tell their story.
0: Oh, uh, thanks, Josie. Well, I, I, first of all, as far as TV and fitness goes, I have a treadmill right in front of my television, and if if someone would just bring me a slice of pizza once in a while, I'd be <coughs> okay there for a very long time. <laughs> I, get I, love it it. I love it. I love it. laundry loads.
2: <laughs>
0: so. Um, you know, it's, I'm just thinking all three of us are bloggers, and that's interesting. Have either one of you ever written about Drinking Dreams in your blog?
2: I did, one time.
0: Did you? Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll,
2: did.
0: Yeah. So we'll encourage we our back. listeners to, to look that up on the Maritals yeah. Around the Corner and, or maybe um, pin it in the morning and so people can find it. I never have, and yet every time I mention Drinking Dreams to other people in, their recovery, in recovery, they always say, like, Oh my gosh! <laughs> Tell me about those. Don't we all have them?
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I haven't. I haven't written about it either. But I know. I mean, uh, amongst the people that I know, especially in earlier recovery, it's definitely a, a hot topic of discussion.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to now imagine the harp music playing right now. I want to ask you both to think back <laughs>
1: to your early days <laughs> of
0: recovery, and um, and remember how it felt to have a drinking dream during those. Early days. Does either one of you kind of have a, a memory of that, Josie? Do you remember what it felt like to have drinking dreams when you were very first getting sober?
2: You know, Jean, I when I was reflecting upon this uh, topic, I couldn't. I mean, I, the way I looked at it as I reflected back, it's almost as if these dreams went through stages. So what I'll do is just take you through my thoughts as I prepared for this show. My earliest drunk dreams that I can remember had just a generalized nightmare quality in which I ingested some mind-altering substance. For me, it could have been pain medication or alcohol. And my mood, like when I woke up, was just sort of that non-specified terror. Now, I would say, too, in that stage of recovery, there was so much chaos and pain in my life that I probably didn't take a whole lot of time to break it down. It just sort of was part of the overall discomfort that was my life. That was the earliest stage. Now, the next, as I grew more comfortable in recovery and as my life sort of settled back down, that's when they became a lot more prominent. Um, It would be the same type of dream, but now I'd sort of examine it in more detail. I'd feel the discomfort more acutely, and most importantly, at this stage, I'd have that added anxiety that would really linger for days of worrying that the dream was a premonition and that it meant I was about to relapse. Now, from there, the next stage was like a big shift. Um, It was more or less when I would have the relapse in the dream. But in addition to being upset about the relapse, I was really upset about losing the sober days. I was still counting daily, and, and then also I was worried I had a conundrum. Do I tell people or don't I tell people? Now, that is a big turning point because it meant I was actually invested in sobriety. I, I believe up to that point I really didn't have any confidence whatsoever that I would actually stay sober for the rest of my life. So the first time I realized I was upset about losing my sober days was when I actually felt relief when I woke up. Like it, it made me feel good that I was sort of I was in this. Um, now, the next one... Was another monumental shift. That same thing would happen. I would, I would take a drug or dr- take a drink. I'd be upset about the relapse. I'd be upset about the loss of my days. And then the worst was, I knew that I had to tell people. Now, when that happened, I really felt. Again, I felt it felt gratifying because that meant. Well, let me back up a little. When I lived in active addiction, my entire life was just a tangled web of deception and lies and it just the idea of just being honest and open was just it just didn't happen so when I woke up from a dream knowing I had to tell people when I knew that I couldn't live that dishonest life. so again that was just one of those huge turning points for me and um, you know again it made me feel grateful in terms of having that uh, in terms of having that dream and if there's a stage five I'm not I'm not quite there yet. Like I'm probably somewhere in between some new one yet, but I don't know it. So that's the best I can come up with in terms of how I view my dreams through the course of the sobriety.
0: Well, and actually you hit on exactly the arc of it. So we're going to talk about all those different stages and what it's like at different stages because it does, drinking dreams kind of mean something different at different points in your recovery. So I'm glad you touched on it and especially on the point of what a burden it is for a person in active addiction to hide their addiction from other people. And Ellie, I've heard you talk about this before and like the great lengths you would go to, to... You know drink or hide it or whatever and and mm-hmm. I think we all felt that, and so for our listeners that maybe aren't in recovery themselves or aren't in addiction themselves, but love someone that's in addiction or in recovery, and that's something you may not realize is that as much as that person is invested in using their Um, drug of choice, their ism of choice, they're also really invested in spending a lot of energy on managing it, hiding it, getting it, keeping it from others, and keeping all the balls in the air. And so I could see how that would be a really big part of your dreaming. But let's go right back to the very beginning. So when that, that sort of waking with the start, do you remember that,
2: Josie, in the early days? I do waking with a start, but more more memorable to me was that feeling of um, again that generalized anxious feeling that I couldn't shake it, even when I knew what it was and would say, you know, it was just a dream. You know, it was just a dream. It, it never quite it, it. And especially in the beginning, it would take this, a solid day. I'd be going to bed that night still sort of have it hanging over my head. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as much as the waking with a start as it for me as it was. It just
1: followed me, and I couldn't yeah. really shake it.
0: How about you, Ellie? What do you remember about the early days?
1: Oh, so, well, everything that Josie said, I love the way you broke it into stages because I definitely think there's an evolution to the drinking dreams themselves and also our reaction to those drinking dreams. And uh, there was a nut, There was, um, I think the first time I got sober back in 2007, um, a stage that, the first stage that came before the wicking with a start and feeling anx- anxious and also heavy amounts of guilt. I went through a period for a few months where I would have a dream where I hadn't been drinking, but everybody in my life thought I had. Oh. And they were all pointing fingers at me and accusing me. And I know you're you know, you're know, acting strange or you're sleeping too much. And I would be in my, in my bodily. I would wake up all tense. I would be so angry. And I'd be trying to prove to everybody that I hadn't been drinking. And how dare you accuse me because I'm finally sober. And it was a, definitely a manifestation of... Um, you know, the, the the arduous process that we all go through in building trust back. And so mm-hmm. there was a two or three month period where I wouldn't wake up anxious or guilty. I woke up angry and sort oh. of indignant and then have this feeling of like in the back of my head, I knew I didn't really have a right to feel angry or indignant because I understood why everyone might think that I was sneaking drinks. But it was so hard and so constant, the work and going into staying sober those first few months. Um, you know, and and the people in my early recovery network understood how hard that was, but the people in my family and my close friends that weren't in recovery didn't, and there were there was a lot of suspicion and, and false accusations, and so mm-hmm. that was kind of a pre stage to the you know three or four months into it, I would wake up, I would have very very vivid dreams of usually it's sneaking into a bathroom or a closet or something and quickly drinking as much alcohol as i possibly could and i usually would mm-hmm. wake up right at right at the point after i ingested it and i would have a combination of fear, anxiety and then for me a, a lingering guilt that would stay with me for a day or sometimes even two um you know there were times you know i would wake up in a cold sweat and it was they were so realistic that it would take me a long time to really convince myself that i hadn't actually relapsed they were very very vivid Mm -hmm. Um, and then that did evolve into, um, probably not until six months or so into recovery for me of profound relief. You know, I had enough confidence in my recovery. I was, I had some familiarity with the phenomenon of a drinking dream. And so I would wake up and think, oh, thank God, that's not true. And I, like Josie, um, articulated, I knew I had turned a corner. I know for me, I went into recovery the first time because I had to, I didn't want to lose my marriage or my family and I was kind of over a barrel and, and I had the idea that I would stick with this until I could figure out a way to drink like a normal person again. So when I woke up and I felt that when it, fear turned into relief, I I also knew that I was in a, in a place where my recovery, I was in my recovery for me then because I wasn't responding to false accusations and I wasn't living in terror because I was trying to sneak. I was, I really valued my sobriety. Um, and I totally related to what Josie said about that feeling of, oh, I don't want to start counting days again. I don't want to have to admit this to anybody, but knowing that I would have if it had been real. Yeah. Um, and so it really, it, it. I think the dreams really are a projection of the stage that I was in 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 my recovery arc so to speak. Um, And I I think the first time I got sober, I had drinking dreams a lot, a lot, a lot, two or three times a week probably for the whole first year. And um, it wasn't until between a year and a year and a half that they started to to become less frequent.
0: And I I can tell you why that is, not because I'm an expert, but because I, I, as producing this show, I did a whole bunch of research to try to find out what's going on there. Why do we have those dreams like that in early recovery? And what I found is that it's simply because we've been drinking habitually for so long and it's such a constant part of our life. Like, Ellie, you say you used to bat the kips with a glass of wine. Like, it's such a constant fixture in our life Mm -hmm. that in early recovery, when our mind relaxes and we're not being hypervigilant about it, we just sort of forget that it's not supposed to be there in the background. So mm-hmm. that's one part of it. Is just we're learning a new behavior, and that that um, it pops up um, as as a habit that we sort of um, just aren't yet used to not having in accompanying us all the time during the day. And um, there's, there, here's a couple things about those types of dreams in early recovery that might surprise you. So. One thing is that dreams are a form of memory processing, so the consolidation of short-term and long-term memories, so kind of like a hard drive, right? It's sort of like cleaning stuff up, filing it, putting it away. So even though we're working really hard to stay sober when we're awake, then once we go to sleep, then the mind is sort of cleaning up these old thoughts and processing them and getting them the dust off the floor, sort of. So that's where one thing comes from. So here's a typical dream that I read about in one of the reports that I read was that someone who's actually dreaming about baseball and the dream is about a baseball game may realize all of a sudden that they have a hot dog in one hand and a drink in the other hand, and all of a sudden they're jolted back into, shoot, I'm supposed to be in recovery. But it's that that in their brain still goes with baseball. So they haven't finished, they haven't taken the drink out of the equation in all parts of their life because they haven't lived it in all parts of their life. So that can that's the thing that can kind of wake us up and go, oh, my gosh, like, am I going to, I lost myself for a minute there. You know, I forgot what I was doing and I drank. But the second thing is that that relief that we feel is a benefit because it boosts our recovery. I had that same experience of waking up and just being in tears because I don't want to go back to day zero. I worked so hard for those 21 days or those 18 days, and I just don't want to go back to zero so that can really remind us of how much we want it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, the other thing, um, sorry, I'm going through my notes and I'm all over the place because you guys just brought up so much good stuff that I've already written all over my script. <laughs> <laughs> um Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is that it is very common in early recovery. So I think a lot of people that have them are kind of, they find them upsetting, they find them jolting, and they're wondering if maybe they're doing something wrong in their recovery, but it's actually kind of a good sign. It means that your mind is sort of healing and processing and and working on things. And it's just the fact that your brain is getting used to a new reality and just kind of cleaning up some of those old memories. So would you guys both agree with that though, that those early dreams really reinforced your desire to stay sober? It sort of propelled you forward.
2: You know, for me, this is Josie, in terms mm-hmm. of if we go back if I go back to my stage classification, that earliest stage I would say it was irrelevant because again, for me, my life was in chaos, so it was just one more thing. Mm. Stages two and three, it absolutely reinforced it albeit in a negative way, in that I was terrified of relapse. And by the time I got to that final stage that I f- still consider myself in, I would say it positively reinforces because, honestly, I get out of bed, I get down on my knees, and I say it out loud, thank you, God, I am still sober. So for me, absolutely. And just a real quick touch on what you just said. when <clears throat> That idea of feeling like you're doing something wrong when you have those strong dreams, that is a true benefit of having some sort of support network, for me it was a 12-step program because I could go in and say, oh, my God, this just happened, and the people around would, you know, the seasoned veterans of sobriety would be like, yep, I did that I'd still do it once in a while, and it, it instantly made me feel better. So it is, I hope people listening today at least, and if you're not a part of any kind of recovery group, at least take heart in knowing we're all telling you that it is okay. It mm-hmm. happens all the time to all of us, and I know it made me feel better talking
1: to someone about
2: it
0: definitely. Definitely. That's an
1: excellent that's an excellent point and I um oh, I kind of lost my train of thought, but I what the the immediate response I had to your question, Jean, was that I definitely felt like that I I knew I had turned a corner when I woke up with the relief, but it wasn't it wasn't instantaneous either. I think I honestly think that it was because a good part of the reason why I stayed sober in the early days was fear. It was fear of not just having relapse, but fear of having to start over, fear of being in trouble, fear of experiencing more losses in my life um because i I honestly wasn't a hundred percent sure that I wanted to be sober, I just knew that I wanted my life to get better, and mm. so when it when that relief came, I knew that it was coming from a place of wanting recovery um for myself, and probably more importantly, trusting the fact that I was really doing this, you know, yeah. I think it took me three or four months to even believe that I was committed to this or that I, that the, it was working. You know, my brain yeah, started bingo. to clear up, my family relationships yep. started to get better. And so when the relief came instead of the fear upon waking, I thought, okay, wow, you know, I'm trusting this process more than I have before. This process of recovery is really it's taking root. And mm-hmm, that, that, exactly. that definitely mitigated the guilt and anxiety that I felt. I mean, I was able to recover from those dreams a lot quicker than I had before.
0: I also think that it made me a little bit more careful in my daily life because it reminded me that you know I could just find myself with a with a beer in my hand at a baseball game like I've gotta remember not to do that
1: <laughs> right,
0: and I don't know how I could have worked any harder than i did i mean i was I was pretty hyper about it in the beginning, and maybe that's just me, but I think it really reminded me, like, yeah, I've got to watch that situation. So it's kind of a reminder to think through things, right, to just remember all these upcoming events that, okay, I need to think about this before I do this. Um,
1: I think what's interesting, too, about that example, Jean, about having a beer in your hand at a baseball game, too, is that because people handle early recovery in very different ways in terms of who they tell, who knows, what situations are safe. Um, And I have heard people that actually relapse because they're trying to, quote, unquote, like behave normally in a situation. Like maybe they're two months sober and they go to a baseball game and someone hands them a beer and they take the beer and they just hold it in their hand because they don't want to have to explain why they're not drinking. And, you know, that's that's one of the insidious ways that this disease sneaks back in. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard of people who walk around with a glass of wine in their hand at a cocktail party just because they don't know how to say or don't want to say to somebody that they're not having, they're not drinking alcohol that night. So that particular example is really reflective of where we are in terms of what kind of situations we're putting ourselves in and how we're managing our um, social, our both our familial, our friends and our social network as to how we're explaining our sudden abstinence to the rest of the world because That can be one way that uh, we find ourselves in trouble.
0: That's true. And so just as a sidebar, I would say to any listeners that identify with that notion of trying to act like, trying to hide from people that you're not drinking, most people really don't care that you're not drinking. Normies don't think it's weird generally when someone says no. And you can lie. You can say I'm on penicillin or you can say, you know, of, dieting, you know, yeah. I'm dieting. Yeah, I'm dieting, or you know, it's I'm length, pregnant. It? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I
1: wouldn't have that cause a stir? Or trying to get pregnant. I've heard people use there that There you go. Word. Yeah, yeah,
0: you just just lie. But oh wow, I strongly caution against um, you know even even holding a drink in your hand or letting someone pour it in front of you at the table. Um, I think mm. that is just you know that's really that's. Playing with fire, if you ask me. I've I've said it before on this show. To me, it's like standing naked with your old boyfriend in a closet and saying, "Well, I'm not going to do anything."
1: (laughs) 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 You just oh, I love that analogy. Yeah, yeah. Everything's going to be fine. What could go wrong? Right.
2: (laughs) We're not touching each other. (laughs) Yes, this is totally
1: normal. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't go in the closet. Okay, let's move on. On that um, awesome
1: visual, let's move with on. With that visual in our head, right.
0: You, every one of us can picture how ridiculous that is and how hard that would be. Oh, good grief. I, I'm
2: telling you, Jean, I'm going to go in my closet tonight and laugh myself silly. <laughs> <laughs> Alone. With
1: your Alone. clothes on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course. Oh,
0: okay. So let's talk about that sort of next phase that you were that you brought up, Dozie, is that after we get a little bit more silver time... And those, our dreams sort of shift away from the habitual, like um, alcohol in the background kind of dreams. They sort of happen less frequently. They do tend to go away um, because you're gaining more time without alcohol as being such a big part of your life. Sobriety becomes a bigger part of your life. That starts to take up more brain space. But it is still possible to have those surprise dreams about alcohol. And they really tend to remind us to cherish our sobriety. But drinking dreams also can take on different significance at this stage. So there's a couple of reasons why we might have drinking dreams at this stage. So one of them is just that dreams are affected by the random events that happen during our day. So sometimes we're just sort of processing little bits of information that we didn't even notice we noticed, you know. So, for example, if you were um, at an event and you saw someone headed towards you with a tray of drinks and you started to prepare yourself, of, okay, what am I going to say, how am I going to say no, blah, 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 but then that person, you know, turns another direction and doesn't come at you. You you might forget that you had that um, sort of non-experience, you know, you might forget that your brain started to work on that program or problem, but since it never materialized, then, you know, it might just go away for you, but you may still dream about it that night because your brain is still niggling on it. So Mm -hmm. I was going to tell you an example. This was quite funny. My husband and I were um, at dinner with some friends recently, and one of the ladies that was there had had some dental work done, and she was missing a tooth. And she kept her mouth covered, and she was very discreet all night. And no one really noticed that she was missing a tooth, but I happened to know because she said something to me about it. And the next morning, my husband said, I had the weirdest dream last night. I dreamt I was missing a front tooth. And I laughed. I said, oh, well, you must have caught a glimpse of so-and-so's dental work and not really realized that you saw it. But that's a kind of little, tiny little detail that Mm -hmm. can just trigger a dream or to pop up in your dreams. So that's one way that alcohol can still creep into your life because your mind is still sort of working on those those, um, issues sort of all the time, even when it becomes not so much at the forefront of your thinking. Mm-hmm. So those sort of fleeting thoughts, you know, that that come and then we don't finish them. Our brain does the cleanup on those in the in our dreams. So if, do, does that resonate with either of you, where they just sort of come at you randomly, or you're not really sure where they came from? Uh, this
1: I can is respond Josie to with one. Oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead, Josie.
2: Sorry. Go ahead. Okay, real quick. I mean, you know, that completely resonates with me. Although. I'm hard pressed. Like I think my monk, I still have a monkey mind. I'm working on meditation, but like, just my thoughts are so fast that even in the reflection of the next day, like even knowing that information, and I think at some point I did know that, I still can't quite put the pieces together. Although for me, the closest I can come to finding similarity to this train of thought is this. And I think Ellie sort of touched on this a little bit when she was talking about her stages. For a long time, a big part of my anxiety and recovery centered around that fear that others would not believe that I'm sober even though I am. Because as I mentioned, lies, cover-up, and deception were a big part of my story in active addiction. So I really, I guess for me, I couldn't fathom how anyone would come to believe or trust me ever. Therefore, if ever on a given day, I was Challenged even peripherally, even in my own mind, not necessarily in reality, because you know us alcoholics, we love to spin a great story on our minds and then convince <laughs> ourselves it's reality, like clockwork a, a drunk dream would follow like I w- that night i a hundred percent would have one, so that's the closest I can come to relating to that.
1: Mhm, I can relate to that also, and one of the things that I also observed is that um I would find, like, here's an example. When I was 90 days sober, the first time around, I was determined to go to my high school reunion because I wasn't going to stay home from that just because I was an alcoholic. Like, I was at that I'm tough, I can do anything stage. (laughs) And I I was really proud of myself because I got through the whole thing and I didn't drink and I wasn't tempted to drink and I had all my one-liners lined up to be able to get through when people offered me a drink. I kept a non-alcoholic beverage in my hand the entire time. I had a plan. I had a buddy there. Um, But I was absolutely played with Drinking Dreams afterwards, like for the two and three and four days after that, where I replayed the reunion in my head, uh, except I made different decisions. And Mm -hmm. so I have found that when I go through something that is, you know, I I anticipated a wedding or an event or a party or a family gathering, and there might be alcohol there, I can get through it just fine. Like I'm, I'm great in a foxhole. But just like you mentioned, Jean, my brain is still processing it because even though, I'm prepared and I'm handling myself well in the moment, there's a whole lot of brain and a lot of emotional energy behind that that I'm kind of discounting. And so I think it's kind of almost like a steam vent in the days that follow it. I find that I'm irritable, I'm short, I'm cranky. You know, I I feel probably more triggered after the event because I've put all my energy into getting through it. And so the drinking dreams would come out in really bizarre ways um, where I'm there. But instead of having a club soda in my hand I have a vodka tonic in my hand and I'm like wondering what to do with it and and it was you know now that you've walked us through what that is I know my brain was still processing that and it's an acknowledgement that those things are actually hard it wasn't that I was Mm -hmm. cocky going into it but I felt so prepared I just wasn't prepared for the aftermath and that feeling of um you know I would even have thoughts of kind of I might have a dream where I'm back in the event and I'm feeling resentful of all these people who can drink normally when I didn't actually have those conscious thoughts at the event itself. They right. were there but, you but know, they you were just buried them. underneath you my plan.
0: <laughs> exactly. You, some part of your brain was ticking that off but you were working so hard in the moment that you didn't have time to register it. I'm so glad you talked about this because I think this could be really, really helpful for our listeners. Know that if you do go to some big big event and think, actually, that went so much better than I thought, you may be processing it emotionally for a few days or weeks afterwards, and that Mm -hmm. could be the part that triggers you. I think that's so insightful, Ellie. That's really... That
1: definitely happens. That happens to me often. yeah. Yeah. Man. me too that did, i really just actually had a recent
2: situation where that now now that you're saying it I went oh my god that's why that happens it was a couple of weeks ago i was having dinner with another couple and um very very close to me and it was just the four of us it was at a small little BYOB i wasn't even half a thought and they said well we're going to bring wine and i was very offended at that. Now i and i felt very cornered and they did have it and i actually thought to myself, "Alright, this wasn't that bad." Like i was very offended at the outset and I, these were people i didn't feel i could say that to even though they know my story very well. We went through it and it, i was like, you know, i even said to my husband, "I have to admit i was i was resentful and it really worked out okay, but i did have a i did have a dream about it in the next couple of days." So that clearly mm-hmm. my mind was still not quite ready to let that go.
0: Mhm. Yeah, that's probably a reflection of the amount of energy that it took you to stay calm and gracefully get through that moment while your mind freaked out.
1: Yes, yeah. (laughs) And Uh, it
0: wanted you to acknowledge that, you you know. And um, and, uh, the other thing you can do with that, and we'll talk about that in a minute too, is that it's also a rehearsal for next time. Or, you know, that, okay, I got through that, but maybe I didn't... Um, get through it. I got through it gracefully. No one knew I was suffering, but maybe I wasn't as kind to myself in that moment as I could have been because right. I had to do so much processing afterwards. So maybe that's a chance for us to think back and think, how could I have still been
2: successful but been a little bit more... More more assertive is what I was thinking. I'm like, you know, I, I didn't assert myself where I should have, and I, I was mad at myself, really.
1: Yeah, I think or, sometimes it, it's reflective of decisions that we make, too, because
0: yeah. after I
1: got more sober time, I looked back and I thought, what was I doing at my high school reunion 90 days sober? You know, like, yeah, I right, remembered yeah. my thought process at the time was, I'm not, my life is not going to change just because I'm an alcoholic in recovery. I am going. Right. And I was defiant about putting myself in situations like that because I thought, you know, who's going to stay home and watch movies just because I can't drink anymore? I'm not, you know, and and I've learned the hard way since my as my recovery has evolved that perhaps the time to make that decision. Maybe I could have made different choices and not gone. Or if somebody says I'm going to bring, you know, we're having dinner party. I'm bringing wine. I'm not stringing you up, Josie. But I've been in the same same position of I don't want everybody else not to drink just because I can't drink. But yes. it, and I did get through the evening just fine, but I was resentful. I just didn't want to touch it. And mm-hmm, point, yeah. like the the opportunity for self care in those situations often comes by avoiding the situation altogether, and that's that can be a hard yes. decision to to weigh sometimes.
0: Or making sure you have your breaks during that evening, like making sure that you even if you get through it, still give yourself permission to go home at nine instead of eleven, exactly. or to say, yeah. okay, you know what, you guys are having wine with dinner. I'm having creme brulee and cappuccino afterwards. No, but whatever <laughs> yeah. self-care that you need to do, I think we all want to think, I'm fine, I can handle it, I can handle it. I'll do this exactly the same I would have done it before I quit drinking, except I won't drink. And that's not how we need to handle those situations. We need to handle them in a new way, The the new tools that we learn in recovery. And in early recovery, we don't have a lot of those yet. We tend to be really pretty crappy at self-care because that's what got us into our addiction pattern in the first place is our denial of our own truth and, and tending to our own true needs. Even though other people might say, well, you were really selfish when you were drinking all the time. That was all about you. But, you know, we learn that it's it's because we're not being true to ourselves that we have so much pain exactly. that we're trying to numb. So that's a really you know I think it's a really great point is that we we it's a reflection that we do need to do things differently, and I think as we get later in recovery, we get better at saying no and being a little bit more selective or assertive or or um using our tools when we're in those moments, and maybe that's why we have fewer dreams later on is because we we do start doing things better. Mm -hmm. I want to move on because the next one I wanted to talk about was was, uh, Freud. We can't talk about dreams without mentioning Freud. And Mm -hmm. his theory when it came to dreams was that dreams realized the unexpressed wishes of the dreamer. So this perspective is worth considering for us in recovery, especially when we're going through a stressful time because drinking dreams can be our mind's way of saying, I want to drink through this. I see alcohol as a solution to this problem. So in in this light, you know, drinking dreams can be a warning sign for relapse, that the dream is addressing mm. us, a, a wish a wish that we're hiding, which is that we wish we could drink or we think that maybe that's a good way to be dealing with our situation. It doesn't mean that relapse is inevitable if you're having those drinking dreams, but they can be an indicator that it's time to reevaluate the current situation and look for ways to manage those problems i guess while we're protecting our sobriety so our subconscious continues to associate alcohol with pleasure and it's you know dreams are sourced in that subconscious mind so i think that's a really big shift that starts to come much later in sobriety years down the road where everyone i talk to in early sobriety almost without exception says I wish I could drink like a normal person, you know. And a lot of people try to moderate after they've had a bit of abstinence because they really just want to be able to drink normally again. And it's it's later in recovery where we really start to accept, okay, you know what? There's is no drinking normally for me. I, this isn't. I, I can't be that kind of normal. So we stop associating alcohol with pleasure because we learn that alcohol is only related to pain in our life. Um, mm-hmm. But this this. Freud perspective of of a dream reflecting our secret wish, I think that's really informative and um so Ellie you kind of told me before the show that you had some experience with how your dreams were sort of an indicator before a relapse. did you want to talk about that
1: sure yeah i mean i can I can speak to it now, looking back on it, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty but I did not um it's a cautionary tale because I did not. Acknowledge or or change my behavior as it as it pertained to my drinking dreams. I was at about four and a half years sober, um, and I, when I began, or maybe about four years sober, when I began, what I describe as about a year and a half slide into a drink. I was I was an emotional relapse, and didn't I didn't note it. I didn't notice it myself. Um, I had pulled away from my recovery network, and even though there were still people that were saying, you know, your behavior is troubling to us. Um, you're behaving obsessively and compulsively and impulsively. You're just you're just not drinking yet, and I dismissed that completely. My particular substitute addiction was workaholism, as I've mentioned several times in the show. But one of the things that did happen is that the nature of my dreams completely changed. Um, it started with um, having a drinking dream and not and waking up without that feeling of panic. I felt something that was akin to loss. And when I was a kid, I used to have this recurring dream that there was a tree in my backyard that grew candy. And I would wake up the next morning and be so sad that the dream wasn't true. And that was what these drinking dreams were like, that I was not in the dream I'm drinking, but not only am I drinking, I'm drinking like a normal person. There's no consequence. There's no fear. I'm holding a glass of wine right in front of my family and my husband, and nobody's angry with me. Everything's quote-unquote fine. And then I wake up the next morning and I felt loss. Like, wow. oh, wait a minute, I'm still an alcoholic. That was the first iteration of those dreams. And then the second one, it right probably in the months before my relapse, it changed not just from loss but to anger and resentment. That I'd feel the loss, like, oh, I'm still an alcoholic and damn it. You know, that yeah. it was a yeah. kind of a it wasn't even, I, I was, my bottom was so low when I got sober that I It's. I never thought to myself, hmm, maybe I can drink in safety now. That wasn't it. It was, there was so much stress, as you mentioned, Jean, you know, that the way our brains change and that, that sort of subconscious longing for that secret relief that I used to have, the magic elixir that alcohol would bring. Mm-hmm. I I longed to escape from myself. And so, because I knew I couldn't, I had years of sobriety, but I was pretty, pretty angry about it and resentful and it was really just a matter of weeks between when those dreams started and when I actually relapsed and when the relapse happened it was totally unexpected and totally unplanned from a conscious perspective but clearly my subconscious had been telling me something because yeah. not once in any of those dreams that I wake up with the sense of oh gosh thank gosh that didn't thank god that didn't happen I thought yeah. oh darn it you know I'm still I'm still an alcoholic. Uh, oh, Ellie, you describe you know, that I,
2: so
0: well because I, I like my heart feels heavy as you tell that. So and, well, and I oh just I see mm. the sharp contrast to what we were talking about earlier of that waking up with a start and thinking, oh thank God, oh thank God, I'm not really drinking, oh, I really want to stay sober. Versus, oh shit, that was yeah,
1: just a dream. Still, I can't, I can't, can't get back
0: it's to it. I, yeah, yeah. 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 You're right. Those are two very, very different <laughs> things. And.
1: And because and I was away didn't... from my recovery network, I didn't tell anybody about yeah, this. Right, I mean, right, the, right. being away from my community was what started the relapse, and and, and then I did not have that outlet. Um, you know, there were definitely still two or three people I talked to in recovery on a, on a daily basis, and I deliberately kept that fact from them because I didn't want them to tell me what I knew it meant. You know, I just ignored it. And I well, and you the rug, didn't but. have the
0: benefit of listening to this particular episode of the Bubble Hour.
1: True, but our listeners <laughs> do have
0: that benefit. So, listeners, if you have this type of dream, you need to understand that this is very—it's a this is a very telling type of dream and that it is a warning sign, and that you need to take action. And so the recommended action is talk to somebody
1: tell somebody, yeah. tell
0: somebody. Go to your support network. Now, if you don't have a support network and you are trying to get sober on your own and you're at this point, reach out. You can reach out online on our website. You can reach out on Crying Out Now, which is Ellie's website, on um, Mrs. D's, um uh is it Sober Living, Mrs. D's um, online network? Mrs. D is
1: going without, yep.
0: Yes, yep. Mrs. D is going without. She has a, a link on her blog to her, her recovery blog. group. Um, that's a great online group. There's lots of online places you can go. You can also walk into any 12-step meeting and say, hey, I need help. Um, cherish your sobriety, but do something. Understand that, that those types of dreams are a warning sign. So Definitely. you heard it. You've heard it. I know you've heard it.
1: (laughs) Yes. Let me have done it for you. She does not want you to go
0: through what she went through, right, Ellie?
1: (laughs) Not at all.
2: Um, You know, I'd like to chime in and say thank you to Ellie, too. You know, I went through a hump of time where, Everything I did, I, I had that paranoia. Is that heading? Am I heading towards a relapse? And I just don't know it. Like, am I going to yeah. look back six months from now and go, "This is it"? I'm, I'm, I'm beyond that. I'm, I'm calmer or more settled. But when you to hear it, like that was like concrete, sort of like a how-to, like if like a checklist. If you're doing this, or if this happens, like so. Thank you so much, Ellie. That really that was illuminating to hear. And now I feel like I have yet another tool in my toolkit. So thank
0: you. Yeah. Oh, good, yeah. good. Yep.
2: Um, I
0: want to point out too I was going to say this and, and I got sidetracked I tell you I have pages of notes there's so much interesting information out there if you find this podcast kind of gets you thinking just go and Google um, research on drinking dreams and I'll mention the particular um, paper that was really informative to me, but the other thing that it said is that dreams are a way for our brains to process possible solutions for upcoming situations that we're worried about, often that we don't even know that we're worried about. It's kind of a protective act where we can sort of rehearse things. So when we were all when we were in school, you, of course, we always had dreams about writing a test and we weren't prepared for the test, right? Or being in the school play and we didn't know the lines and uh, and uh, we had those types of dreams. And so that can also happen to us when it comes to our sobriety, that our dream life can kind of put us into these situations as a way to rehearse how we would get through it sober. But when we have those types of dreams, again, wake up in the morning and take a moment to try and remember your dreams and think about, okay, I dreamt I was at a wedding. But think about, did you dream you were at a wedding and you were handling it or that you were drinking and having fun. Like is your brain trying to tell you, I wish I could drink at that wedding or I'm planning how not to drink at that wedding? Like it's really I think it's important to just take a moment, especially while you're still still in bed even, before you even get up, that's the best time to remember your dreams. Amanda, I said, Amanda, do you want to talk on this show tonight? And she's like, no, I don't remember my dreams. And I'm like, yeah, no doubt. She's the Energizer Bunny. I'm sure her alarm goes off and she hits the ceiling and bounces back and zips <laughs>
1: off on uh-huh. her day.
0: So if you can kind of take a moment and, and process things, and just, it's a real chance to kind of get in touch with what your subconscious is thinking. Um, the article Even if that I, I think you can't
1: remember the specifics of the dream, Jean, I think one of the things that sometimes if you wake with a feeling... You know, yeah. it's, it's sometimes it's kind of I'll have a, a twist in my gut or a feeling of panic or a feeling of urgency or something. I mean, even if I just take a few minutes every morning and just kind of bring myself back to earth and think about what that could mean for my overall state of mind, whether it relates yeah. to drinking or not, it's definitely a helpful mindfulness exercise.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's almost like, you know, we're taught as kids to say our prayers before we go to sleep, and I think it's really important that we take some time upon waking just for reflection and and gratitude. And I, I have found that, that that is as much an important part of my day as sort of the end of my day, um, It's just just to take those quiet moments where it's just me before the world gets in, you know, and mm-hmm. and um, think about things. Because that's what we drank to avoid, was those quiet moments with our brain, but we get braver mm-hmm. about it. <laughs>
1: right,
0: I and it's one examines.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. He, um, the article that I found so helpful um, in this um, in preparing for this show is called, um, oh, it was written by Dr. Karen Peters for the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And it actually used some sort of hard data and research on uh, people in recovery and the types of dreams that they had. Um, she wrote in that article, by exploring and discussing common dreams, and themes in early recovery, clients can be taught how to use their dreams as sources of information for their recovery. Relapse warnings, high risk situations, stuck points, and developmental progress in recovery can easily be identified through dream exploration. Cognitive and behavioral strategies for the high risk situations and warning signs that are revealed could be developed and rehearsed. Clients can be guided to identify the sober and addictive selves which can help to identify distorted cognition, self-destructive behavior um, that perpetuate the addictive process, as well as thoughts and behaviors that support the recovery process. So really, that Mm. really validates everything that we've been talking about as it relates to our own um, experiences. So I just want to kind of run through some of the stages and types of dreams that we talked about and just go over kind of what they mean and how we should think about them as we look back on them. So when you wake from a drinking dream, reflect on it, as we said, and consider the following. Was your alcohol use incidental, such as you didn't realize you were drinking and suddenly you realized there was alcohol in your glass? So that is an example of the familiar backdrop of alcohol. So your shocked reaction to finding alcohol in your hand is an indication of your desire to stay sober. Um, The suggestion is to write down that dream and keep it as a reminder um, to strengthen your resolve to stay sober. Reflect on your dream and ask, was your using intentional and were you pleased to find yourself drinking without consequence? This would be an example of wishful longing for alcohol and your response may be to spend some time considering all the benefits of your new life and recovery. If you find you have an unstated desire to drink, acknowledge it, look at ways to alleviate it, exercise daily gratitude that will help you focus on the things you love about your life without alcohol instead of romanticizing it at some level. Go back to journals from your early days of sobriety and that can be quite helpful. And as we said, talk to someone about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Ask yourself if there were consequences to drinking in your dreams. If yes, this is a good sign as it shows the subconscious is aware of the consequences and plays them out automatically. If you were drinking in your dream and there were no consequences, heed the dream as a warning that the subconscious is responding to the learned appeal of alcohol as a relief. So, this is a time to assess other means of finding pleasure and assuring that your recovery toolkit is stocked and ready. Um, so get in that bubble and and take care of yourself in there and Finally, ask yourself if you're drinking dream uh, if you were drinking in your dream as a solution to a problem that you're dreading, like an awkward social event, a big work project, or a public speaking requirement. if it was. Take note that your mind is stressing about that event and defaulting to the old fallback of booze. Plan ahead for the upcoming event and acknowledge the real concerns that you have. Decide if you should attend or participate. And if you choose to, be sure that you have a solid plan so that you can enjoy yourself and stay sober. Um, Is there any other aspect of dreams that we haven't touched on that, that comes up for you guys?
2: Hmm. I mean, I really related to everything that, that that was, that's awesome. That's another really good checklist of stuff. For me, it, I don't have specifics. It's not, I don't have anything as specific as like an upcoming wedding. And then I have a dream about it. It's more generalized for me at this point. I'll have a dream and I will wake up and I will, I will know, even if I can't remember the details or don't know what it's specifically, specifically relating to that there's something going on with me like that. I got to look inward and figure out what's going on. So that's, the closest I can come to saying yes that's what happens in in my world in this day
0: yeah that's mm-hmm. great so then you're using your dreams as a a messenger to look in yeah. how about
2: you
1: Ellie well I think I mean I'll, we were talking briefly before the show and I, I'm I'm listening to this checklist and reflecting on on the example that I gave you guys before the show started about how you know I've been experiencing a, a new kind of dream a new iteration of this and um, since my relapse last year I'm just coming up on another year at the end of this month, God willing. And I have thank you as another way to reinforce my toolkit when I came out of treatment, they prescribed me Naltrexone, which is a drug that you take or a medication I should say that you take. It's totally non-narcotic on a daily basis and um it's a it's an opiate blocker, but it also blocks the effects of alcohol. And it's not like an abuse where you get sick if you drink, but it just means that you get all of the negative effects of alcohol, a hangover, throwing up a headache, and none of the positive effects. So that if I were to drink, nothing, nothing um, euphoric would happen to me at all. And so I've been taking that now for almost a year, and I've been having probably... Probably once a week, I'd say, a dream or in the dream, I'm in a situation where there's alcohol around and, you know, as it always happens, even in real life, my eye is drawn to the alcohol. I'm hyper aware of the fact that it's there. And in my dream, I have the thought, oh, thank God I'm on naltrexone. And even if I did drink that, nothing would happen. You know, I would still have to count my, I mean, it's not that I would think of that as not a relapse, but I'm, I'm relieved in the dream that I have the added protection of that medication. And I've been referring them to in my head as my Naltrexone dreams, so they're not really drinking <laughs> dreams, but they're kind of medication <laughs> dreams. And I've been, as you were list- listing that checklist, I was thinking to myself, now how would I, how do I interpret that? Is that a positive or a negative reinforcement, or just a statement of fact? And um, I, th- I think upon reflection after this show, I view it as um, probably mostly a positive thing because I definitely. I'm relieved that I have the medication as an added tool. I'm relieved that it's it's there to sort of save me from myself because as I mentioned, my relapses had been opportunistic. I didn't plan them. I was just around alcohol and I was as surprised as anybody else that I drank. Um and so it's probably a reinforcement. I mean, I have thoughts like maybe I don't need to be on this medication anymore. It's I don't have negative side effects, but it does any medication taxes your liver and I I kind of start to romance the idea that I could wean myself off of it. Sometimes like people do on antidepressants, when they start to feel better, they think, oh, maybe I don't need this antidepressant anymore.
0: Right. It's working. I um, must not it, need it.
1: <laughs> it's working. If it's not broke, don't fix it. But it, I, I think it's important that I talk about it. You know, I'm mentioning it on this yeah. show. I should talk to my people in my network about it and just yeah. pay attention to it. Take note of it and the frequency with which I'm having them and, um, you know, instead of, sweeping that under the rug and making the decision in a vacuum whether or not I should be on the medication. I'm going to speak to my doctor and the people who are in the know about what the pros and cons are of that. Um, because it, my favorite thing to do is to have things like this happen and just keep it all in my own head and figure it all out on my own and not take right. the advice that we consistently give on this show, which is <laughs> tell people what's going on, Um because I don't want that to be the last barrier between me and a drink i'm not that's not the the only reason I'm staying sober i I like to think of it as something that's an added layer of protection, not the uh the only thing between me and a drink. so I need to evaluate that and make sure that that's true.
0: I think you're right. I think it's good to talk to somebody about that, and I'm glad to hear that you wake up and you're relieved like that's a good thing and if yeah. if those dreams were to start to shift to where oh, I was at a wedding and I was the life of the party and I was, you know, spraying champagne all around the room and, and it didn't matter because I was
1: on this drug, that would yeah, be if a different Yeah, I was mad thing, that right? I was on naltrexone, yeah, if I was yeah. that I was yeah. on naltrexone, that that would definitely be a warning sign. Yeah, yeah so right. it's like I think
0: the, the thing is that our dreams can just shift subtly. You can have almost the same dream, but you have a different feeling in that dream exactly. or a different feeling when you wake up. And um, and that's the part of it that's so telling. So it's really good that you're aware of that and that you're paying attention yeah, to that it. That
1: checklist is is very very helpful in that because the dreams themselves that you write are not as important as what they leave with you. I think.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Well, good. Well, okay. We have rounded out our hours, so I'm just wondering if you guys have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to share before we sign off.
2: Hmm. Well, I am really so grateful um, to both of you for sharing your stories. Ellie, I'm going to take so much of what you said with me. And I think for me the biggest learning tool that I got from this is that I'm, I am going to pay closer attention. You know, I I definitely have them, but they're they're pretty generalized, and I don't take the time. And really by the time I'm making kids breakfast, they're kind of gone from my head at this point. But now I am going to either keep something next to me in bed or just take that time to really think about it because now that I have that Karen Peters article, I'm going to really look at that and use it as a checklist and, and see what's going on. So I'm I'm really grateful mm-hmm. to have heard and take part in this conversation.
0: Uh, thank you so much for being here, Josie.
1: No problem. Yes, thank you, Josie, and I have I have the exact same takeaway. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, the, one of the things that I just want to reemphasize for the listeners also is that, and, and I, because I hear this talked about all the time from people who are brand new to recovery, what does this mean, what does this mean, why am I having these dreams, and it is totally normal. Um, to uh, To me, the subtlety of this, the whole subconscious nature of this entire conversation is just a giant representation of how Sneaky this disease is, and how ingrained our our thought patterns, our behavior patterns even are around drinking. I mean, we're whether we're aware of it or not, our brain is hardwired to look for that shortcut that we that we use through alcohol all the time, whether it's mm-hmm. boredom or stress or joy. Um, and so, instead of trying to, I mean, I, I guess I guess the, the cautionary or the bottom line of all of this is just to to honor and respect my subconscious mind and, you know, but, but, but be gentle on myself and understand that, um, you know, even though I'm always going to be an alcoholic, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I have the gift of this awareness now to focus on self-care and to build up a support network and that I, I don't have to wade through all of these things alone. So if anyone's being plagued by this type of thing, it just, it helps so much to talk to people about it. I mean, I, I learned a ton from this show also, and I love that checklist and, and uh, I always feel this way after the bubble hour. It's just the, it's just the power of sharing. So I encourage <laughs> so everybody true. to to do the same.
0: I agree. I agree. And there's lots of places to get that support. There's lots of pathways to recovery. And so don't be afraid to go and explore them because this is the this is the great kind of support that you find, um, the learning and the, you know, just the, there's something really special when you talk to another person in recovery, isn't there? Like there's just that knowing laugh and that, ability to start a sentence and everyone's nodding when you're halfway through Mm. instead of cocking their heads and looking at you like,
1: huh, (laughs) (laughs) like the rest of the world does.
0: So I, yeah, I really encourage people to, to seek out, seek out your people. We, we are all so good to each other in recovery. We really do this together and, um, and we're, there's strength in numbers, right? Uh, yes, there's, there's, uh, it's easy to break one twig, but it's not easy to break a handful of twigs, and that's that's how each it, of us are. Thought. We're stronger in a group.
2: Yeah. And all and all there's was a magic within that that you, I really have yet to find anywhere else. There's a magic when two when recovered people get together that I I have yet to experience in the outside world. So I can't recommend it strongly enough.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. It's
0: so true. So true. Well, you guys, on that warm, fuzzy thought, I guess we'll close the show for this week. I want to thank you both so much for being here, and I want to send out our love to Amanda and Catherine tonight, our, our other co-host, our fearless tweeter, and um, also to thank all of our listeners for for listening, for sharing our show, for giving us your feedback, and for just being part of this, because we really, really appreciate um, the way that that this show is really just fueled by the listeners, and and that we take the feedback you give us, and and it turns up on the air. So please, please let us know what you think, and ideas for the show are always welcome. Um, I want to remind you to check out Josie's blog. It is the miracle is around the corner dot wordpress dot com. And Josie, you're going to post a link on there, right? To the yes, I am. Dream. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It'll be fun for you to look back and read on it too. Definitely. So as we close the show tonight, as always, we um, would like to direct you to our parent organization, shiningstrong.org. And there you'll find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. You'll find a link to my blog, Pickled, as well as our email address, um, and that is thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions. And if you would like to go directly to our website, that is thebubblehour.com. You can listen to our shows there or follow the link and subscribe to our podcast. We are also on Facebook, so be sure to like our page. And we thank you all for listening to the Bubble Hour, and we wish you all a great evening and sweet dreams. (laughs) Good night, everybody. (laughs) Thank you. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye.